So what are we discussing with his father and revenge? All right, what? so now I guess it's time for us to pivot to this round's DGMH Patreon bonus question. As Sherry and I get ready to try and figure out how Charles's father, King Charles I, and revenge maybe factored into his actions and life as King of England. <laughs> Again, talking motivation a little bit here, but we're going to get ready to try and explore the psychology of revenge. Listeners, just follow the link in the show notes to support the show and get access to this bonus episode, as well as a Habsburg chin's worth of content. Or is that just a terrible joke that needs edited out? <laughs> Whatever. At least, I, at least I know what that means. That, <laughs> that I learned from the podcast. Oh my gosh. All right. So uh, let's let's we're pivoting to the Patreon bonus question. Yeah, I was kind of thinking the questions that came to mind for this were you know, losing a father, how does that affect someone? Um, and revenge, because revenge seemed to be a piece of, of his reign, a piece of his story. Was he an outspoken, vengeful person or a quiet, vengeful person? Quiet, vengeful. He was like, he, he was, he was, I mean, the, the Catholicism conversion, the last minute conversion on his deathbed, that's as quiet vengeance as you get on your protestant subjects that killed your father um the sticking a dead man's head on a pike for 50, 25 years until it blew but yet, how, but yet how quiet was it if everybody found out about it if well, he, he really wanted to convert to catholicism wouldn't he have just done it quietly well i think he was always a, a, a closeted catholic but to formally convert as you must remember the, head, the king of England is technically, the monarch is technically the head of the Church of England, the protector of the Church of England, the Protestant Church of England. And Protestants had killed his father and Protestants had been the enemy of the monarch. And Protestants were Charles's greatest obstacle. And, and Charles just said, fuck you. Uh, so right. I don't know if you want to talk about loss and how, you know, whatever daddy issues emerge whenever you uh, lose your father or anything. I don't, I don't think it's about that. I think it's about defending the honor of okay. the different aspects of English culture that his father stood for. Okay, I like that. And, and I think everything that you said about, you know, the Protestants and their responsibility for Charles I's death, um, I think it has something to do with a pretty cool little concept that's called the culture of honor. Um, so when we look at uh, um, cultural groups that have a tendency to become aggressive when they feel like they've been slighted. Um, honor. What is it? The term, the, the term is that they're defending honor. I'm sorry, so, you cut out once again. The term oh, is. <laughs> the term is that they're defending their culture of honor. Culture of honor, okay. So for example, if we look at different demographics in the United States, um, people who belong to the Deep South tend to demonstrate what's called a culture of honor. Oh. So you can think about stereotypes of people from the South, uh, their ties perhaps to the antebellum era, um, symbols that are part of the culture that are passed down to each other, but they are people who will defend their geography, their family, their birthright, their territory, mm -hmm. no matter what the cost. Okay. If we look, for example, at people who live in the northern part of the United States, not so much um, a culture of honor. There just is not that cohesiveness and that need to 
come to the defense of all of the aspects that define their culture. And I think for Charles II, I think maybe that was it, that all of these actions he did to avenge his father were to defend the honor of the culture that Charles I represented that then were taken away um, when he was executed. So sovereignty of the, the, the sovereignty of the monarchy kind of thing. That's I, I think it's more than that, though. I think it's, I think it's, it's the religion. I think it's the uh, general climate of the country, um, the expectations of factions working together toward the good of England. Um, I think it's more. I think it's more than that. Okay. I think it's more okay. than a crown. I think it's more than a. It's more than a position. I think it's everything. And and maybe Charles II. I think maybe I meant the power of the king, not just the, the title king, but the power of the monarch, maybe, is the, the culture he's and trying I, to say. And, and, I, and I, think, I think the reach of the monarch as well. Yeah. It's not yeah, just yeah. about the power, but it's about, it's about how, they are, how they are regarded and what they do for their citizenry. And I think that was part of it. How old was Charles II when his father was executed? Uh, let's see. In his uh, he during the Civil War, he was a teenager, so maybe in his early twenties, whenever he went into exile. Yeah. So you know, even if you think about that, um, you know, being kind of late adolescence, early adulthood, um, you know, there's still a lot of emotionality that's part of the growth process, and I think the timing of that probably lent to it as well. Mm -hmm. But I think it was it was you know just because there was such a difference between culture under Charles the first and then what happened after his execution mm -hmm. I, I think that it was a way to to avenge that you know I always think about the last scene from uh, the great 80s movie Red Dawn uh, where the kids are you know holding up their rifles at the end and screaming Wolverines I mean I mm -hmm. think that um, all of these things that Charles II did to restore what he could closer to what it was when his father was in power um, was to defend that. Interesting. And when you and when you defend it, you think it's the right thing. That everybody should be subscribing to, and I, I think that that's a way to explain it. I'm sure, historically speaking, divine rightism plays into that as well. The idea of what the king is on earth and what he represents—that that's part of that culture. Uh, that needs to be honored and it was disgraced by beheading the monarch i guess is the ultimate disgrace regicide to kill a king um you know and i thought a lot a lot of cool things that we could have talked about with the, the religious justification for regicide that eh, didn't really sound very fun um didn't know if you want to talk about freud or anything like that but revenge was cool because when i looked up revenge in psychology because i always try and get a little background it talked about the rewarding nature of revenge and whether it was rewarding only in the short term or the long term do you know anything about that well you know the process of reward is very different from human to human and is largely based on the neurotransmitter dopamine um, that is manufactured in the neurons. And, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, other chemicals uh, like oxytocin and, uh, you know, uh, it, his chemical system may have been, you know, balanced to have that rush from that sense of pleasure. Um, and maybe that's something that added to the idea of merriment from what's remembered about him. Um, and it could just be that, um, you know, he, 
you kind of rush, you know, when you drink your, your favorite wine or you have your, you know, best Italian meal that you've ever had. The reason why it's the best is because when you're experiencing that, you're having this flood of dopamine through your nervous system and that, and it's different for everybody. I yeah. mean, you may love manicotti and somebody else may love, um, you know, um, you know, pasta fajoule or something like that. I love but, pasta um, fajoule too. Do I look like a manicotti manicotti lover? I mean, are you calling me out right now? I don't now? know. I'm just, I just am a manicotti lover. I had Italian for dinner tonight, so I just was, you know. I, I, I'm a huge manicotti lover. Like, if I had a choice, manicotti is my choice. Um, really? Absolutely. I mean, lasagna is good. I love just pastas, all all kinds of things. I mean, carbonara is my my absolute favorite. But but as far as noodles and like a type of pasta, good manicotti red sauce. Mm. I didn't know that you were a carbonara person. Actually. Huge. I make a pretty, I make a pretty good damn carbonara from one of my girlfriends, Barb Geary from college who taught me how to make it. I, I, I love carbonara. I have a, a big block of pecorino cheese ready to make it in my, my fridge. I'm just, I haven't gotten around to try and make it myself, but if it's on the menu and it says egg in it, I get it right away. Uh, you know, I, I love the, the traditional, you know, there's a cool, a very interesting history story there that I, I learned uh, credit to uh, Stanley Tucci's, who I, who I love, by the way. Stanley Tucci's amazing, especially in The Devil Wears Prada, which is a fantastic movie. Did you know that he played a uh, serial killer in The Lovely Bones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's that creepy old dude. Yeah. Yes, like I he, had no idea. I was just, I saw that movie over the yeah. weekend. Yeah, no that's movie. a good movie too. But Devil Wears Prada is a classic. Yes. Did you have you watched his new Italian? Yeah, that's what I was getting to. The, the the one where he talks about carbonara. He uh, he talks about the the history behind it. Maybe that it was like World War II American soldiers liked their bacon and eggs, and so they would put the uh, guanciale or the pancetta in with their egg and their pasta because there was no bread or something during the war and eat it that way. You know, and that was what they had for breakfast was their bacon and eggs with their pasta. The 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 Romans like no 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> no way is an American getting credit for carbonara. Um, either way, it's damn, it's fucking delicious. Uh, I love it. So we were talking about rewards and revenge and dopamine. Dopamine. Maybe. You know, if it, if it has to do with the idea of being rewarded, I mean, it could just be that that's what, that's what gave him his, his rush of pleasure. Um, doing anything to, you know, I don't know. But like the memory of his father, or like to avenge the, the honor, you know what? Is, I well, just, that's that's I called that that's honor. culture. Yeah, that's a culture of honor. That's culture of honor. Yeah. Some combination of the two. I'm sure that after he avenged his father and fulfilled that culture of honor mindset, that uh, he got a little bit of joy and pleasure out of it. I'm sure uh, that it was. Uh, you know, I like to picture him converting to Catholicism and just laughing as he died, like <laughs> as, if it, as if that changes anything. Does that get you? Does that get you into a different entry? A different entry into heaven? I mean, yes, there are different yeah. door: Protestant door, Catholic door. Same, same door. It's just both sides think the other doesn't have the key. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, anything else you want to throw in there? The only thing I had else uh, here is, you know, this was actually an interesting question: is why didn't he? try to fill the void of his father like Lafayette or Hamilton did with Washington. That's something that stood to me. But did he have a good relationship with his father? I mean, uh, close enough, I, I think. I, I mean, mean if, he, if he had a good relationship with his father, then there's no void to fill. 
So because he died in his teenage years or early 20s, he knew his father enough that maybe it didn't matter. Plus, King's children aren't necessarily known for being close with their fathers. Well, and that's what I was going to say. I mean, was he somebody who was groomed as a child and teenager for the throne? Probably. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he would have yeah, been. So I, I, I think that that was just a, a, piece of, a piece of that. So, you know, usually if people have issues, they're trying to fill a void, but maybe he just didn't have a void. Oh, I think he had a big void, and I think he filled it pretty, uh, pretty well with women. <laughs> I don't know what, but... Uh, I, don't yeah, know. I think I think it has more to do with that idea of survival. That mm-hmm. I think that you know perhaps when his father was executed, he just um, had this incredible motivation to ensure that he survived, that the Stuarts mm-hmm. survived, that his father's way of life survived, and so everything that he did was toward that purpose. Interesting. Well, I like it. Well, are you ready to go back to the main show? Okay. I mean, I didn't have any more questions. Did you have any other kind of out there um, thoughts that you didn't want to throw yeah, in? There? I have checked off everything on my list except you. You had a quote Ooh. that I fell asleep in the middle of that I and I couldn't find it again. So it was a king should be a blank to the people. A king should be a father to his people, and Charles was certainly a father to a great many of them. That was the quote from. Yeah, and so I mean, I even think if you look at. Quote. Is that your quote or is that somebody else's quote? No, that, that's a quote uh, by one of his cabal members, by one of the right. people who ruled for yeah, him. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that all goes back to, you know, protecting this, mm-hmm. this honor of the house um, of his ancestry. And if, if he was known and viewed as a father to his people, I mean, not all monarchs were viewed in that way no. so clearly that was you know perhaps a reason behind why he did what he did maybe 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 the only other thing that comes to mind and i don't know if it's a psychological concept is nepotism is that a psychological concept yeah but nepotism i mean how many nepotism who are you talking about charles, charles he was oh my god he he used nepotism to increase his power he appointed bishops he created new nobles he ruled by a cabal of five people uh, that he put in power to ensure that they were loyal to him. He flooded the House of Lords as much as humanly possible to increase his power base. But the only way he could increase his power base was by getting political people loyal to him, like in a way that Louis did. But, but I think that goes back to, to instinct theory, the idea of surviving. Um, one way to guarantee your survival is to put people that you trust and you know around you and so I think when he appointed all those people and created all those um, other offices, that was a way of guaranteeing that as well. Uh, you know, he wasn't going to be um, victim to a coup and, yeah. you know, or, or something related to that. But side piece nepotism is a psychological term you have to, you've covered? I don't think nepotism no, is a psychological term. Sociological it's just, uh, I think it's just a term. Political term, maybe, yeah, I guess. Spoils to the spoils, to the victory of the spoils. I don't know. Interesting. I think it's just the vocabulary. I think it's just a word. Oh, it belongs to one discipline or another. Fucking words that are just words. How dare. Hey, it's like Mary. It all goes back to a word. Mary, it all goes back to a word. Who knew definitions would provide so much great content? Ready? Well, then uh, we've checked off the list. So, cheers. Mm-hmm.